Hey, Jesse. How's it going? It's going great, Katie. Would you like to know why it's going great? I would love to. A reckoning is afoot. Would you like to know whose reckoning is afoot? I'm a little nervous about this, but I suppose so. <laughs> Katie, your reckoning is afoot. My reckoning? Mine? What did I do? Your reckoning. Your particular reckoning. There have been other reckonings, but your reckoning is afoot. Will you let me explain? You're going to continue interrupting me. I suppose I have to. Katie, as you're aware, around the country, there's been a reckoning with workplace microaggressions of every shape, size, and color. I have heard this. Rumors have been circulating about the blocked and reported workplace, our virtual office. It's supposed to be a safe place for what is effectively a family to put out high-quality entertainment. It has not felt that way lately to a certain member of the team, namely me. Hmm. The... There has been an endless series of workplace microaggressions lately perpetrated in one direction against me here in full view of the world and our listeners. I would like to read them out and hold you accountable. Do you agree to be called in in this manner? I suppose as a good ally, I must. Okay. I hold in my hand a list of three microaggressions you have recently committed. Microaggression the first. You recently tweeted out my cell phone number and said, and I quote, Hey, everyone, if you are a true Blocked and Reported fan, you will text message Jesse right now with your estimate of his body fat percentage. <laughs> Hint, it is not low. This made me feel hurt, violated, and fat. I don't know why this is funny. I don't think anyone else listening is laughing. Microaggression the second. Wait, 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 Jesse, I just want to say there's nothing wrong with being fat. I know, but you weren't implying that with your with your fat shaming message. Microaggression the second. You publicly wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine that, and I quote, single likely started the coronavirus with his farts. <laughs> this made me feel unwelcome, disgusting, and diseased. And worst of all, I have no way of disproving this calumny without access to lab equipment I can ill afford at the moment. Is there a third? <sighs> Microaggression the third. In our private correspondence, you regularly refer to me with deeply offensive nicknames, such as Jew Boy, Jew Dog, Jew Cat, Jew Aardvark, Judas Priest, but spelled J-E-W, Juju Bear, Juneteenth, and perhaps most offensive of all, Juju the Jewy Jew. None of these are acceptable, Katie. The year is 2020, and it is completely beyond the pale to make fun of any non-Italian, ethnic, or religious group. Can I call you Jew Man? <laughs> Katie, I would like you to engage in 80 hours of anti-bigotry training centered on the unique experiences and historical injustices faced by Jesse's. Do you agree to my demand? I guess I don't really have a choice. Yes. Thank you. I, I think moving forward, we can we can improve this very hostile workplace. But I just want to say in the spirit of bringing us back together and having a productive work relationship that I will never, ever forgive you. And I will always hold this <laughs> over your head. I mean, that's only fair. Do you have someone in mind who can teach this diversity training? Yeah, I found someone. Uh, he does it for $500 an hour. His name is... Oh, it's me, Jesse Single. <laughs> All right, well, uh, your check is in the mail. One last request. To scrub away the anti-Semitism that is caked onto the side of your soul like weak old yogurt, you need to listen to Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song for 500 hours straight without eating or drinking. Okay, now you've gone too far. We can negotiate this. My people are good negotiators. <laughs> That's the most anti-Semitic thing that has been said on this podcast. I think I just microaggressed myself. What What is the podcast we are currently microaggressing each other on? This is Blocked and Reported, the only podcast. And I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single.
unfortunately. Katie, what are we talking about this week? I actually don't know. What are we talking about this week? <laughs> we just talked about this. Uh, we're talking about the rationalist community and this weird thing going on at the New York Times involving a potential doxing. And we're going to feast on this incredible New York Times story about white liberals in a sort of rough neighborhood trying to live by their principles. It sort of has to be explained to be believed. We'll get there. Before we dive in, just the usual stuff. Uh, you can contact us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You should definitely pay for our Patreon at patreon.com slash blockedandreported. Uh, we're about to record after this one a patrons-only episode on the sort of religious style of of white liberal anti-bigotry appeal that that's more or less what we'll be talking about right yes and as a an additional enticement for people to join i will also be revealing who threw the first brick at stonewall was it me it was not you in fact <laughs> it was it, it was actually me <laughs> Well, yeah, so that'll be good. And then also check out our subreddit has had some amazing conversations lately. Thank you to Soft and Chewy, who I once said had a like disgusting username, but then he clarified that's just like how he likes his chocolate chip cookies. So unless chocolate chip cookies is itself a euphemism for something gross, that's a fine username. Soft and Chewy, thank you. Reddit.com slash r slash blocker imported. Okay, so we're first we're going to talk about... Um, a guy named Scott Alexander, who has a blog called Slate Star Codex, posted to his blog announcing that he was pulling down his entire archives. This is because he said the New York Times tech section was going to be writing an article about him and his blog and how they had been right on certain coronavirus stuff. Slate Star Codex is part of the rationalist community, which is a sprawling, fascinating corner of the online world. And I thought the best person to explain this would be Tom Chivers. He's a, an online buddy of mine, a great journalist. Uh, despite being British, he's still a great guy. He wrote a book called The AI Does Not Hate You, Superintelligence, Rationality, and the Race to Save the World. This is an awesome book. It's just it's about the rationalists. It's about AI. It's about risk. It's about discourse. It's actually not available yet in the States, but um, he, he's working on making it so. We'll include a link to its Amazon page. So here's Tom Chivers explaining sort of the background context of Scott Alexander and the Rationalists. Okay, so in about 2008, this guy called Eliezer Yudkowsky started writing a series of blog posts, an incredibly long series of blog posts, um, which ended up being called The Sequences, and which started out being about explaining why we should be worried about AI, but because to explain why we should be worried about AI, he had to explain intelligence then had to explain in human intelligence, and then he had to explain why human intelligence wasn't normal intelligence, you know, it wasn't all intelligence. Um, anyway, it expanded. It was like when you pull on a thread in a jumper and the whole thing unravels, and uh, it ended up being something like a million words of blog posts over several years explaining, you know, intelligence, uh, Bayesian reasoning, human uh, 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 evolution by natural selection. Uh, at one point, it strays into quantum mechanics it, uh, it's you know it's a whole thing um and it attracted this quite large following this website was called less wrong it attracted a following of, of, of readers who were really interested in this stuff uh and the group and it, because part of what it was doing was trying to explain sort of methods of rationality and how to you know what it means to think correctly and why humans don't do it so human biases and um sort of the nature of decision making and all that sort of stuff uh, they became known as to their slight chagrin um the rationalists they preferred aspiring rationalists but anyway um and one of the other bloggers who wrote who who joined in on the site as well was scott alexander who uh, then went off to set up his own website called um slate star codex and 
Playstar Codex was set up explicitly to uh, with the ethos of the principle of charity. So it should be like it was about examining ideas that people that you might not agree with and sort of seeing and sort of trying to understand them because you know the, the idea of principle of charity is if that something seems so absurd and ridiculous that it can't that you the person that seems to you the person who believes it must be stupid, then maybe you know the principle of charity dictates maybe it's it's you who's misunderstood here and it's your failure of understanding. Um, it became gigantically influential and successful and uh has many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of readers every week or however you know whenever he chooses to publish um uh has addressed you know all sorts of topics from ai because that was sort of where it sprouted out of but also rationality but also he's he's a psychiatrist so it's lots of really in-depth sort of journal article studies about um uh discussions about uh new antidepressants or stuff like that but also um stuff about why we argue online and and it became yeah it's 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 got this huge following it's sometimes controversial because it's gotten sort of rows with uh sort of online feminism sometimes um uh because uh, you know he tries to address these arguments quite calmly and reasonably or but but it does mean that does mean sort of not being on side with some of them and it gets and he has got got into some quite big rows and then in the last few days, he, it turned out that he, uh, the New York Times was going to write an article about him and they were going to give his real name, because his real name is not Scott Alexander, it's Scott Alexander something. Um, and as a result of that, he has deleted the entire uh, sort of seven-year wor- uh, body of work, which I, for one, am completely gutted about. Katie, have you had many sort of encounters with rationalist types? Are you familiar with this world? I've had some vague encounters with it. I didn't know that the rationalist community was a thing until actually fairly recently. And oddly, I was on a podcast on Thaddeus Russell's podcast, maybe a year or so ago. And I was just sort of ranting about I don't can't remember what I was ranting about. I was ranting about something. Um, and I said something about how like, I just want like, I want to be rational. Like, that's my sort of I don't want to like apply different labels to myself other than the fact that I just like my like on like my guiding principle in life is to try to be rational. Turns out there's a whole community of people who also just want to be rational. Um, So I joined a Facebook group for rationalists in Seattle. And all I know about them is that they are gamers who also have potlucks. And I think they might also be poly. I think that's maybe a little bit there's like an overlap there. Um, But so my, my my knowledge of this group is is very limited. They are extremely poly. They're known for being poly. <laughs> They're a, a really interesting crew. Um, I've I've hung out with some of them in New York. I actually met Scott Alexander at a meetup last. This is like now a, a running line in the show, but I've completely lost any sense of time. I, I think I met him at a meetup in like 1920. I don't know, sometime in the in the recent past. Um, what I loved about the book and what I love about Slate Star Codex even when I disagree with it, is that they're really committed to understanding how everybody is riddled with biases. This is actually not a popular, this is a very known thing that everyone is biased, but these days we'd like to assume just like the other side is biased, whoever the other side is. So I really like the method the rationalists have developed for sort of trying to understand debate and discourse. And as Tom mentioned, like this has sometimes put him at odds with sort of online feminists on on my side or whatever. But I don't know. I think I think Scott's great. I think it sucks his blog is gone. I'm gonna I'm gonna post links to sort of some of my favorite essays and a, and a great short story he did too. I mean, his blog is incredible. There's so much good stuff on there. You could just dive in there forever. It's clear why he was able to build such a great community. I'm posting links in the hopes that it comes back. Um, I th- I think. If if you're a listener of this podcast and you're not familiar with the rationalists, if you like us, you will probably like folks like Scott Alexander. It's just a thriving online community. There's there's 
some weirdness to them. And, but I sort of like that. It makes them more interesting. So we got so many requests to cover this story. And I think at root, it's sort of, it's hard to know what to say about it because as of today, like 3 PM Friday, Scott took the blog down. Um, you know, he said like, if, if I'm named as they plan to name me, this could really hurt my patients. It could hurt me. I've had death threats. The New York times has not run the story because there's less of a story if there's no blog and it sort of, it makes it harder for the times to report on it. But yeah, we're sort of at, at an impasse where I'm not sure exactly what to say about it other than Scott's great. And, and I hope this blog comes back. Well, in general, um, you know, beyond Scott, what do you think about the ethics of revealing people's personal identities online by major media sources? This is certainly he is not an isolated case. There's been many, many cases in the past couple of years um, where some mainstream media source will uncover something about a private citizen and publicize it. We talked about this just last week or the week before um, at some point about the Washington Post article about a woman who a private citizen who who dressed in Megyn Kelly in blackface at a Halloween party a couple years ago who was fired for her job after the Washington Post started inquiring about what had happened. Um, there's a story I remember in particular from a couple of years ago where the Daily Beast reported on a baker at Mar-a-Lago who's a Q follower, a QAnon follower. That was it. Like she's not a public, she's not a public figure, even less of a public figure than Scott Alexander, although he is pseudonymous. Um, but this was determined by, by many, by many people to be a newsworthy story. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think among the public at large, people have completely incoherent views on, on so-called doxing, which is connecting someone's online identity to their real-life persona or to blowing people up like the Washington Post did. Um, you'll see people sort of uh, accuse others of doxing and then do the exact same behavior when it, it fits their politics. I think news outlets should just – if someone says they want to remain anonymous or synonymous, you should – you should give them the benefit of the doubt unless there's like some some pressing newsy reason. I don't see what that could possibly be in the case of um Scott Alexander. I mean he is he's using his first and middle name. That's what Scott Alexander is. But it seems like it, it could do some real damage to him and his patients. So like what's what's the conceivable journalistic argument for why that's important? So he posted this final blog where he said, you know, I'm concerned that if my identity gets revealed, I, this will interrupt my relationship with my patients. Um, but uh, apparently the New York Times response, the re response from the reporter was that it's the policy to not grant anonymity to people. Um, did you find some I believe I saw on Twitter that you found some exceptions to that, though, right? Yeah, I'll post a link, but there, there, there are lots of exceptions to that. I mean, I think even Virgil Texas, who's a Chapo Trap House podcaster. You mean that's not his real name? <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine being named that. Uh, those evil parents. There are a lot of it. There are a lot of examples where the Times doesn't do this. So it just, it seems like there's no good reason to do it. And just saying it's policy is sort of silly. I mean, especially these days where the Times is just sort of doing whatever an angry crowd tells them in some cases. So uh, yeah, I, I don't think they followed consistently if it is policy. I don't think there's any reason to do it now. And I hope that, I hope that a, the article doesn't run in that form. I mean, I think the best case outcome is they come to an agreement where they say, okay, we'll call you Scott Alexander. Then Scott can put the blog back up. Everyone wins. The times gets to do its article. Scott Alexander keeps, gets to keep doing what he's doing. But as he pointed out, his patients in his psychiatry practice range from far left to far right, and it could introduce all sorts of complications if his blog is linked to his identity. I mean, which is a risk he took, but why, why should a major outlet like the Times be the one who blows him up? There's just no, there's no need for it. What do you think in, in general about um, reporting on private citizens when they may be unwilling to, to be reported on? 
whether you're whether you're uh revealing their identity or not like i i have an example there was a a minor blow up on social media after a woman who it turns out lives in Seattle um, was canceled because she it was revealed that years ago she had used the N word in a DM and like the soft A N word. And she's a the woman she kept a film blog. So this was a four year old direct message and it read and I'm going to censor myself here to not get in trouble. I was going to reply to this with inward say what then I was like holy shite that's racist I can't say that on Twitter and just to be clear like it's the soft a in word if we were recording this like two years ago I would just say the word or even last year I would just say the soft a in word because that was not a like high crime and misdemeanor until recently but now it is so I'm not saying the word but that's what she said um, and so this was leaked and uh, the staff of her blog quit and then she later that day she posted these like tear like tearful videos basically saying she was about to kill herself like she'd taken a bunch of pills she'd cut herself so you could see like a like blood on her arm um and so she posted these and then like disappeared for a while and so after this a bunch of prominent people in the film world like Barry Jenkins, who was the director of Moonlight, responded and said, like, you know, like with support. Um, and so then this other director, this guy named Jason Lee Howden, who's the director of this this like film that came out this year called Guns Akimbo. So he started commenting and he was calling the people, her critics, he called them cyber bullies. And he also like minimized the use of this term and, you know, claiming it was like clearly written in the context of a private conversation. And I also think it's worth noting here that this woman is also Turkish. So her uh, perception of like racial issues in america and this was four years ago is probably different um anyway so she didn't kill herself um i got in touch with like the seattle police department and they went and checked on her and she was still alive um and i so this was covered by like vulture and a bunch of other film film uh blogs and websites because this guy jason lee howden the director of this film guns akimbo then there was this like big push to cancel him because he had defended her and called her her bullies woke cyber bullies or whatever just this like drama um so I reported on this. It took place in Seattle and it was sort of, you know, it fell under my beat of sort of like cancel culture and, and internet bullshit. And it had also been reported on by a bunch of other people. So I got in touch with her or I tried to get in touch with her to ask her for comment. Um, and she didn't get back to me. And so we were in the piece. And then uh, several hours later, she got in touch with me and um, and was like, you know, I, I need you to take my name out of this. And I responded immediately and was like, okay, um, um, let me talk to my editor and I'll get right back to you. And then immediately after that, like not even, I didn't even have time to talk to my editor immediately after that. She emailed my entire office. Um, <laughs> And she said, like, your reporter is harassing me. I'm vulnerable. Um, you know, just like, it's like, took, like, so I wrote this piece, like, that was basically sympathetic to her. And her immediate response to this is to, is to like public, is to attempt to publicly shame me. And so I wrote her back and I said, like, hey, uh, you know, like, all right, I talked to my editor, like, we're willing to take your name out of the piece. Um, but for the record, the next time you need a favor from someone, uh, trying to publicly shame them probably isn't the best way to go about it just because I was fucking annoyed. Right. So here's what she did. She took a screenshot of that and then immediately sent that to my entire office too. So I was like being like publicly shamed by this person who I had just defended 
against public shaming. Oh my god, yeah, that's not great. And but sort of the ethics of like reporting on this in the first place, I do think it's muddy. Like I, I considered this a story because it had already been covered by other people. If it hadn't, I don't know that I would have. Like if she had actually died, it certainly would have been a story. You know, that it would have been a, a suicide over a over a cancellation over a public shaming. That's definitely a story. Um, but she didn't die. I mean, thankfully, she didn't die. Uh, she did unfollow me on Twitter, I believe, um, which is basically the same thing in my mind. <laughs> and But I, I did, you know, I, I am sort of conflicted about when it's appropriate to cover these online blowups if the coverage is going to make the life of the private citizen ultimately worse. Because I do think there's value in this, like, to, to sh- sort of shine light on this phenomenon that is clearly happening the media can do that, but you can't really do that without also some collateral damage. Yeah. No, I mean, those are really interesting journalistic questions. I guess the, the with the Scott Alexander thing, he's, he's made himself a public figure. Like he's a, a prolific blogger. He's got countless followers. So I'm not sure it's a direct comparison. I think in general lately, we've seen a trend toward uh, media being fairly irresponsible about like dragging unwitting private figures into the spotlight. And that's partly because journalism is just getting more tabloidy in general but but i agree that like we should some of these issues should actually maybe be talked through a little bit more coherently and, and openly yeah and i think part of this goes back to sort of the daily the, the news cycle like if you have a deadline every day or two or three deadlines a day in some cases you're constantly looking for content and what that means is that you don't have time to like leave your office or leave your house and go talk to people and find stories what you're doing is like searching the internet for shit to write about because it's literally all you have time to do before your next deadline is due. Yeah. It's, um, I just, I just hate like this trend toward everyone being fair game to get, to get like humiliated and wrecked. And I mean, we saw this, um, this bizarre sort of attempt at a Karen shaming video with, uh, this guy, Carlos Dillard seems to follow this woman home. She's freaking out. She knows her life is about to get really difficult. He's sort of a claim claims that she cut him off in Seattle. He follows her home, starts filming her, films her license plate. He, he after yelling at her for flipping him off and cutting him off, he then sort of throws in at the end that he, she called him the N word. This got, when I checked, I think it had 4 million views on Twitter because it was going to be the next central park Karen video. This woman immediately like, you know, was covered by, a bunch of tabloidy websites. No one gave any thought to like the fact that the video lacked any kind of context. And then people quickly found out this guy, Carlos Dillard is basically like running a scam of, of, of approaching people in Seattle and filming them as though they just did something racist and then trying to make it a viral video thing. He's also a Trump supporter or a former Trump supporter, at least former Trump supporter. Sorry. Um, I mean, it, it might be current. I don't know. He seems just like an opportunist. I mean, this video is incredibly humiliating. Like the woman really is hysterical. She's trying to cover the license plate of her car. So, you know, so people can help like identify her, identify her, presumably. At some point she yells out, I have a black husband, which I actually do think is relevant um, when it comes to claims of, of racism. Unless you have the, you know, the Robin D'Angelo definition of racism. So you think, I mean, I think I have a black friend definitely is not a shield against racism, but yeah, like if you marry, it's sort of, it'd probably be hard to feel sincere racism towards someone you're married to, unless it was such a dysfunctional marriage that it turned you racist. Right. 
<laughs> well, he immediately started telling T-shirts that said, like, I have a black husband on them. So this guy seems to be just a total opportunist. Like, at one point, he uh, he posted a video not that long ago of him. He drives for Postmates, and he went into some Asian restaurant, and the, the woman working the counter asked to see his phone because I guess that's, like, how you, you know, sh- show your identity on Postmates so you can pick up this food. Um, and, he, and he doesn't want to do it. And then he just sort of offhandedly accuses her of calling him the N-word, which, like— Man, this is all this is also happening in Seattle. He is sort of claiming that Seattle is this hotbed of white supremacy, of like overt white supremacy, although this one was Asian, so maybe anti-blackness or Asian supremacy or something. It's just really not. See, I mean, like there are like Seattle definitely has problems with race. A, a lot of a, a lot of it is subtle, though, um, or it, or it, it's systemic in the sense that. You know, there's no income tax. There's no capital gains tax. So everything, basically everything is funded by like levies and property taxes. And that makes, you know, school funding vastly disproportionate. There are like major racial issues in the city, but it is just not the kind of place where, you know, you have like regular hate crimes. What's so weird about the video with the Asian woman is he's like, he's yelling at her about being racist. Um, for the phone thing. And then he leaves the restaurant and there's bystanders. And then he says to them, yeah, she just called me the N-word. Like, as though that, if she had done that, that would have been the main, like, it's just he throws that in at the end as though it's a side note, which is the same thing he does in the the would-be Karen video. So if people just like, I mean, this is hopeless, and journalism actually only plays so big a role because regular everyday people love circulating these videos, but people should just exhibit a little more care in, in retweeting something that contributes to someone's life being ruined. I mean, I would argue no one's life should be ruined unless they've done something, like, truly awful, but... If you're going to help ruin someone's life, at least like fact check it first. Well, so here's another question here. So we're talking about this guy on his podcast. Uh, You said his name. I forget what it was, but Carlos something. Are we part of the problem? uh, Carlos Dillard. Are we part of the problem by naming Carlos Dillard, even though because he's done something that that we find morally (sighs) reprehensible? I yeah, no, it's tricky. I mean, maybe it's it's. It's like you're shaming to stop shaming, but right. he's done this multiple times. And what I want to happen, I don't want his life to be ruined. What I want to happen is the next time he tries to post one of these scam videos for him to get shut down. I mean, what I really want to happen, if if these are as fake as they seem to be, is someone, I hope someone can sue him because that would just put an end to this. But he's really, he's doing, like millions of people saw that video. And when you're posting videos ratcheting up racial tensions over incidents that don't appear to have actually happened, that's like, that's evil. That's how like you really, society starts to corrode even further. So I agree. It's tough. Right. I do think there's a place in media for a story like this. Like if I were still working at The Stranger, this is a Seattle story, I would have gone and tried to talk to that woman and tried to talk to the Asian, you know, the the people at the Asian restaurant and to to actually report it out. So I do think that the media can have a, you know, just like do our basic job of just getting to the truth of the matter, um, which is sort of how I at least like morally justify um, reporting on things like this. If the goal is to get not just to blindly repeat the accusations, which I think is often the problem, but to actually figure out what the fuck happened um, and, you know, just be basically a fact checker. Yeah. But there's no there's no reporters left. No one's getting paid to do that. I mean, who who would would have what percentage of journalists these days? You, you would need like at least a day to fully report that out to talk to everyone you need to talk to, get everyone's side. Who has the resources to do that? Uh, no one in Seattle media, and also the, no. and there's also the fact that no one in Seattle media, at least left leaning or mainstream media, would do it because it would be problematic. Um, there's also right. whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Right, like there's a, a conservative radio show that would definitely do it, but 
you know, they have they have their own agenda. Um, and also, like, it's just politically impossible for anyone on the left to raise skepticism about some of these things without facing possibly real repercussions. I mean, this sort of reminds me of the uh, the Bubba Wallace news thing. Um for anybody who sort of missed this, so which is unlikely. So earlier this week, or maybe it was last week, um, NASCAR announced that there was a noose hung in the garage of the only black NASCAR driver. And, you know, it was like terrible. There was all of these like shows in support of solidarity for Bubba Wallace, the driver. And then it turns out that it wasn't a noose. It was like a pole, uh, like a garage pole that had been there since like well before he was in this garage. And there's just no evidence that it was anyway racist. Um, You know, and when I first heard this story, I was skeptical but I didn't say anything, even though like I can't get fired anymore. I told my wife, like, I don't think this happened. I didn't wasn't sure if it was a hoax or if it was just a misunderstanding. It turned out to be just a misunderstanding. Um, and NASCAR put Bubba Wallace in a terrible position by announcing this. And then before any sort of investigation, um, and then when there's an actual like the FBI put like 15 people on this case, and then they find that like, no, it's not a fucking news. So he's basically publicly shamed um that becomes a convenient sort of uh talking point on the right to say like hate crimes don't happen this is a hoax but you know i was skeptical and i didn't say anything publicly because if you're a person on the left and you express any sort of skepticism over claims of hate crimes or whatever well guess what now you're canceled yeah it's not great should we um turn our attention to some legitimately good journalism from a journalist who did have resources yes let's do it so there's an amazing story in the Times headline, a Minneapolis neighborhood vowed to check its privilege. It's already being tested. It's by a woman named Caitlin Dickerson. This is like a, a really well done story. And this is a, a good example of what the kind of journalism that can be produced when, when journalists do have resources. Cause Times reporters are among the few remaining journalists who really could take like days to work on a single story. And Caitlin Dickerson's story is about a neighborhood called Powderhorn Park. She describes it as quote, a tree line Minneapolis neighborhood known as a haven to leftist activists and bohemian artists. Um, and what's happened there recently is since the George Floyd protests and, and George Floyd was killed not far from here, a sort of homeless encampment has set, been set up in this, this local park. And a lot of the white liberal residents are trying to grapple with their ideology, particularly this new sort of, um, you could call it anti-police or, or anti-getting the police involved ideology with what to do with a neighborhood that, that is experiencing more and more social problems. So, these days they're not, they're trying to do whatever they can to not call the cops on this homeless encampment, despite the fact that, you know, there are some troubled individuals there and there's some bad stuff happening. There's a guy in the story who is these two teenagers appear. One of them points a gun at his chest and tries to steal his cards. He hands over the keys, but they're the wrong keys. The teenagers get frustrated and, and run away. And then go steal a car down the street. Oh, yeah. They stood right. They stole a car. Uh, so, yeah, after this guy called the cops, he, he then refused to cooperate with the prosecutors because apparently they found the boys. Um, I'll, I'll just read a paragraph about like how his thinking evolved on whether he should have called the cops. Two days after initial conversation, his position had evolved, right, Stickerson? Been thinking more about it, he wrote in a text message. I regret calling the police. It was my instinct, but I wish it hadn't been. I put those boys in danger of death by calling the cops. It, this is tricky because like one of them pointed a gun at your chest. I understand nobody wants these kids to be killed, but like 
a teenage boy, a 15-year-old with a gun running around the neighborhood puts a lot of people at risk. And at a certain point, like it would be nice if we lived in a society where we didn't have to call the police and where there weren't a lot of guns and 15-year-olds with guns. But like, I don't know. When I read this article, it just seemed like a lot of the ideas floating around right now colliding with, with reality. What, what was your take? Yeah, I mean, it was a very funny article in a... <laughs> sort of a like, you know, all these dumb white liberals way, um, which I identify as a dumb white liberal. So I'm really talking about my own kind. Um, I wonder if these people knew the actual data on police shooting on police shootings and the risk of um, and the risk of, of being killed by the cops, if they would still think that every interaction that a black person has with police could potentially is a, like that that there's a real danger that that person is going to be killed. I mean there's certainly more of a danger if you have a weapon. Police kill way more people every year who uh who are armed than unarmed. Um and yeah, I think you know if if like a 15-year-old with a gun had if the police had called on them and that kid had run, yeah, there's certainly a likelihood. But it's also not this is not something that's so common that it's like, you know, the biggest risk to to teenagers is being shot by a cop. It's just not. It's also I'm trying to pull up the stats but like um I mean, if you really want to look at this statistically, the the most common way people die by guns is suicide. Right. Like, there is a much bigger chance of a given kid with a gun, even just killing himself, all things being equal, than being shot by cops. And and this has come up a few times before. I think we both we both think policing is much too aggressive in this country in various ways, including cops being too trigger finger we've seen so many videos but that's a different question from like i won't call the cops on a kid who threatened my life because i'm worried he'll get shot when that statistically is unlikely to happen and the other thing about this it's like you don't just call the police because you're scared in the moment you also call the police to prevent something like this from happening again i mean it's not just about punishment it's about prevention um the same thing like you know Oftentimes, if someone experiences sexual assault and they don't go to the police, there are lots of reasons to understand why people wouldn't want to go to the police, including how they're treated by the police. But if you're raped by a stranger and you don't go to the police, doesn't that put other people at risk of being raped by a stranger as well? I've just sort of never really understood that logic. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky because you don't want to pressure. Um, I, I mentioned that I on the show that I dated someone who was groped by someone um, driving an illegitimate cab. And it's really tough to go to the police. But it's like, it, it's a, it is a balance. You need to acknowledge that you're making a trade off by not going to the cops because then he could grope the next passenger. So this whole article depressed, I mean, in addition to being very morbidly funny of like these do good or liberals, like actually facing crime for i think in, in some cases like sort of the first time um it made me depressed as hell just about the fact that you know my whole thing politically is i want the america to be more like germany or, or better yet like finland or a scandinavian country i we have like what feel like a lot of problems we shouldn't have given the resources we have at our disposal this neighborhood suddenly has a homeless encampment in it I'm not saying there are no homeless people in Scandinavia or Germany. Of course there are. There's social problems everywhere. But the the offloading of sort of risk and responsibility and moral judgment onto individual people where like these individual people feel really bad that they might, you know, inconvenience a – kid pointing a gun at them or or these homeless people who really in some cases need mental health support and need housing like that shouldn't be the responsibility of the people living in this neighborhood because there's cheap housing it it is this sense of like everything trickling down and and 
government not doing what it should be doing and people with power not doing what they should be doing at the end of the day it's just like this, this can't be about just individual people and like whether or not you call the cops you should want a society where people don't get menaced with guns and don't have to set up encampments in a city park yeah there's a lot of that a lot of that conflict in seattle because there's obviously there's a housing crisis here like there is everywhere and these are there there are these um these big homeless encampments one of which uh, i think could is now known as chop nay chaz um <laughs> And you have a lot of people in these neighborhoods who there's also like major opioid problems here. And you have a lot of people in these neighborhoods who who feel unsafe, who, you know, have these like incredibly, <laughs> they're playing incredible amounts of money to live in these places. And they look out the window and there's a homeless encampment. But the homeless encampment, so what the city will do is just come in and clear these homeless encampments, but they don't have, but these people don't have anywhere to go. And it's like, the, the thing to do is to establish housing, but that is also politically politically impossible for a lot of reasons, um, partially based on just like uh, tax structures, you know, and especially now that everybody, that cities are going broke, there's going to be less money for things like housing and uh, and mental health and things like that. But yeah, it, it just, it does seem like these this neighborhood is just sort of really between a rock and a hard place. I mean, you can't use your own park, but you also acknowledge that this is a problem. So because you're sort of a good liberal, you feel like you have to sort of grin and bear it. Um, I'm glad that that's not my neighborhood. Well, but that's, that's I think that's what gets me about this. It's never it's not the rich people who have to step over, like pass out homeless people in a park or who have to deal with crime. They seem to be insulated from these problems. And you just but yeah, it's harder to get into a gated community. Yes. And and obviously there's counter. I mean, you're mentioning sort of tech guys in Seattle. They live in, in glassy condos and then. I would imagine in, there's not everyone has the same politics, but there is a thing of like rich urban gentrifiers then being against affordable housing and being NIMBYs. And that is a big reason there is a housing crisis. But that's what gets me. Like if you're if you're from a, a town like the suburb I grew up in, it's so easy to be sort of anti-police and be like, yeah, abolish everything. We don't need anything. That's because these problems don't affect you personally. Like – it doesn't seem it is not rich people mostly affected or privileged people. So again, to see like these these schmucky white liberals who, if they had real money, they would not be living in this neighborhood. The whole point is it's like an affordable artist enclave for them to be hand wringing about like whether they should call the cops in situations where they could be in danger. It made me feel bad for them, even though again they are schmucks. One thing that I found a little bit odd about the article was that. I think the the reporter sort of went out of her way to make it seem like this is like a heavily gentrified area and that lots of people of color have been displaced because of white people moving in. But she also mentions that the black population has only gone down by 5% in the last 20 years, which is not really significant. In 20 years. No. And you don't even know that those 5% of people left because of gentrification or, or you know or what the circumstances were yeah matthew desmond who wrote a great book called evicted like one of the one of the books that had a few books had a bigger impact on me in the last five or six years or whatever it was in evicted his whole thing is like he just thinks the focus on gentrification is so overblown and i'm very sympathetic to this argument because like the the bottom of the housing market is where it's like a nightmare where you have you have like a single mom and three kids who cannot find a place they can live for more than three months for years Obviously, people do get, you know, pushed out as neighborhoods change. But in terms of like what what big a slice of the pie of the problem that is, it doesn't seem to be that big, according to smart people like Desmond. And my theory, as always, is like we focus on <laughs> wherever journalists live and like upper middle class people are moving in because we want to feel like a big part of this and we want to feel bad and guilty and debate it. Right. And people seem to forget that gentrification can actually 
benefit certain people, like, for instance, homeowners. In some ways, you know, one of the reasons that black people have lived in or are more likely to live in poverty and don't have this sort of general the, and don't have this sort of generational wealth that that white people are more likely to have or a certain subset of white people are more likely to have is because of things like redlining and urban redevelopment and things that, you know, crash the housing market for these neighborhoods and depress property values for a long time. If an area gentrifies and all of a sudden houses that were, you know, worth $100,000 are now worth $300,000, that's creating generational wealth. I mean, when I lived in Seattle, I lived in a, in a gentrifying neighborhood and I, I had like a lot of white guilt about it. Um, I like argued with my girlfriend that we shouldn't move there. And then I started doing more research on gentrification. And just for instance, like the people I live next to a, a black family, they bought their house 30 years ago for under $100,000. They sold it for $900,000. That is an and, and they, you know, like that's an insane amount of money that is actually going to create wealth for their entire family. So obviously there are losers when it comes to gentrification. I mean, my rent was high as fuck. Um, and that wouldn't have happened so much if there hadn't been like the cute little artisanal bakery down the street that was sort of also a product of gentrification. But this black family beside me made money off of it. Yeah. Yeah. It, look, it's complicated. And, and, you know, in any situation, if you already own property, you're more likely in a position to benefit. And People also benefit when crime goes down or when there's a supermarket. I just none of this is to say that people don't get pushed out of neighborhoods. It's just again, as always, the focus isn't necessarily where it should be. Um, yeah, but I, I thought um, I think that's a fair point about maybe trying to squeeze this into a gentrification narrative. But overall, <laughs> such like a perfect. It's like I feel like anthropologists trying to understand this decade, which is off to a very rough start, will like be reading this 300 years from now. They should have Robin D'Angelo come in um, and uh, and do it, do some talks on white fragility, uh, solve other problems. We were minutes away from going a whole episode without mentioning Robin D'Angelo after publishing two on her. <laughs> Sorry, Jesse. It just it can't be helped. She is the she is the unofficial mascot of this podcast. What's what's your policy about when and under what circumstances you'll call the cops? On your on your private island. On my private island, I have never called the cops. I think on anybody. Um, which is maybe maybe my privilege. Um, yeah, I've never called the cops on anybody. I've, I've, I guess I've never really felt the need to. Um, if I saw, if I you know heard somebody being beat up, I might call the cops. I, I almost. I mean, when you live in New York, like people are just screaming every hour of the day. <laughs> I mostly don't do it. I'm very cognizant of the fact. Um, I have a friend who's Bolivian. When we lived in D.C., he was drinking uh, in a park some wine with some friends. I don't know the details, but I, I believe the version he told me, which is the cops rolled up and he was the only one who got arrested. Like they left everyone else alone. One Brown guy, I think stuff like that probably happens all the time. I also know in New York, there's awful stories of people getting arrested over bullshit. I do avoid calling the cops for anything but serious stuff. In DC, I lived in a neighborhood with, with a people who were regularly getting murdered, um, including the, a woman who worked at the Dunkin' Donuts. I, I frequented, if memory serves, a kid was rolling by on a bicycle, tried to shoot at someone else. This poor woman was in the middle. She She's dead because she got caught in the crossfire. So when I heard gunshots, I would absolutely call the cops. And I think you're actually kind of a bad person if you hear – I mean, I don't want to call anyone a bad person. But, like, gunshots, people die. And it's not usually people like me, even when we live in, in a, a rough neighborhood. We're not usually the center of the violence. So – I'm sorry, you need the cops when when there's guns involved. You need someone to try to find the person with the gun and make sure they don't have a gun anymore. I think that's really important. Um, other than that, I am incredibly lenient. I, I just don't want to like make life diff. I'd rather deal with a little bit more um, 
inconvenience on my own end. And also everyone in my apartment building is constantly noisy. I'm sure I'm noisy. Like it's, it's just, I think when you're in New York, you develop a callus about noise and, and the lack of personal space. So I'm a good guy. I'm an, I'm an ally. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, as we've been talking about defunding the police or abolishing the police have said that, you know, what needs to happen is that the police shouldn't be the ones that you call for every particular for the noise violation or domestic violence or for drunk driving or whatever. I think there's some downsides to that, mostly that if there's a, a domestic a domestic incident going on, if somebody's getting their ass beat by their husband or wife or whatever, I don't know that a social worker is going to come in and be able to um, de-escalate the situation. If there's sometimes you need someone with 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 a gun or whatever or with some power to uh, to stop someone from from being harmed. Um, but I do think in other cases that that's a that's a good idea. Like. Uh, should police be the one responding to homelessness? Uh, maybe not. Although then again, like there's also a lot of mental health issues with homelessness. There's in Seattle, at least like uh, a not insignificant proportion of, of crime that happens downtown is connected with, with homelessness. Um, you know, so it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, I like, look, if there's like a bunch of dudes sitting on a stoop drinking and they're being too loud, the best outcome would be if like someone they trusted from the neighborhood was like, look guys, can you just wrap it up in a half hour? People are trying to sleep. And it'd be okay. great if they, a Karen, yeah. You need every rest. every neighborhood oh. should have its own designated Karen. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I lived. I spent a summer in in Washington Heights, which is this Dominican neighborhood, um, way uptown, like right after college. And I would play basketball with the kids, like until they'd pull a basketball hoop in front of our building, and me, I would just tower over these Dominican kids, and they would we would play. <laughs> and they would uh, still 21. beat your ass. <laughs> they would not be my ass. We, if we were playing soccer, they would have destroyed me. But I, I held my own. But um, you know, people have small apartments. They don't always have AC. They would be out in the streets till two or three a.m. They'd be drinking it. They were having fun, and it was totally fine. Occasionally, someone would get too drunk, or there'd be a fight. People didn't call the cops. They they settled it themselves. I don't mean settle it like someone was dragged off and beaten. They were just like step between people and make sure things cool down. And obviously, the less we can involve the cops, the better. And that's especially true in America, where it seems like a lot of our cops are not necessarily good at de-escalating. Right, right. And where we have more guns than we do people. So there's this constant fear, I think, on the part of the police that everybody is holding a weapon. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a, a pretty cop skeptical podcast, but also not a police abolitionist podcast. I do not think all cops are bastards. I'm just going to say it. I don't. Some of them have uh, known parentage. They know who their mom is and their dad. Are, so they're not <laughs> bastards. Those are the only ones who aren't bastards. Is that is that it for the free episode before we release this incredible patrons only episode that everyone should subscribe for because it's going to be so good? Uh, yes, that's it. One other thing is um, our online buddy Lee Stein. Uh, Katie, you haven't met her in person, right? I have not. No. Lee Stein is a, a writer. She has this book out called uh, coming out called Self Care that is hilarious. It's hilarious. It is out June thirtieth. We're going to include a link in the show notes, both to the book itself, just because everyone should read this. And I think it's going to get a little bit overshadowed by the whole end of the world thing. But it's an amazing book about just like identity and corporate wokeness and just basically everything our podcast is about. This book is awesome. Yeah, I'm not a big novel reader. Um and this was, but this was so good. This was, it's this hilarious, sharp satire um, that I r highly recommend everybody check out. Um, and to have a COVID book is a is a terrible thing. I feel bad for everybody who's publishing in this exact moment because 
basically like book tours are canceled. No publishers are putting resources towards promotion. Like it's not a good time to have a book out, um, which is really too bad because this book is fucking excellent. Yeah. And we're also doing a sort of online release chat thing, like a video chat with her, uh, with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, uh, Kat Rosenfield, uh, the five of us on July 1st. We'll include a link to that. I think it's supposed to be like a $5 donation to this COVID relief fund. So I'm looking forward to that. And I just, um, goes without saying this is not an advertisement. I just, I want everyone to read this book. I'm afraid it's not going to get the, the platform it deserves. So yeah, this has been blocked and reported. I'm Jesse single. And remember if a 15 year old points a copy of white fragility at your chest, you are legally allowed to use lethal force in response. And I'm Katie Herzog. And if you find a rope hanging in your garage, the first thing you should do is call your neighborhood Karen. Karen.